The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me now as we go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help? Father, as we come to your word, we're asking that you would show us the beauty and the majesty of Christ. Oh God, cause your glory to be seen so that every heart would delight in Jesus, so that we would be able to say, not our will be done, but thy will be done. Whatever may come, whatever we might face, whatever is on the horizon, we would be able to say, your will be done, because we have seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ. So do that in this gathering this morning, for the sake of your name and for our everlasting joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I remember the terrifying feeling when I thought that I had my identity stolen. You can sign up for these free credit reports or free credit checks, and so I received this big, thick envelope in the mail, and as I opened it up, I saw my name, and then I saw list after list of credit card that I didn't open. I saw car loans that I had not initiated. I saw debts that I had no responsibility for as far as I knew. And so this was a terrifying feeling. There was my name and there was all of these debts, all of these charges. And I was asking the question, have I had my identity stolen? My, my terror turned to relief when I realized it was my name, but it wasn't my social security number. It was actually a different number, and it was actually the credit report of another Stephen Lee that lived next door in the apartment next to me. True story. But identity theft is one of those terrifying realities because it feels so personal. It's an attack, not just a illegal or unethical use of our social security number or credit card information, but it feels like an attack on our very being. Someone is trying to be us. It undermines the very reality, the very thing that we have which is unique to us, which is our identity. Our identity is so vital and essential because in it we find the answer to the age-old question, who are you and what's your purpose in life? We can answer those questions only with a clear understanding of our identity. And that's what Peter knew. He knew that if his readers lacked an understanding of their identity, they would lack meaning and purpose. How can they withstand all the challenges and the trials and struggles that are coming if they don't understand their identity? And so, Peter's already touched on this topic and theme of identity throughout the book of 1 Peter. He said, you are elect exiles, chapter 1, verse 1. You've been born again. Chapter 1, verse 3. You are obedient children. Chapter 1, verse 14. You are to be like newborn infants. Chapter 2, verse 2. And you are living stones. Chapter 2, verse 4. But now here, he zooms in on their identity once again. 
He wants them to know who they truly are. And the main point of our passage this morning is that believers have been given a new identity and a new purpose. We are God's people called to proclaim his excellencies. We've been given a new identity, a new purpose, and we're God's people to proclaim his excellencies. And so what we're going to do this morning is ask three questions. What is the believer's new identity? And there's five descriptions. What does this new identity produce? And then what is the purpose of this new identity? So first, look with me. What is the believer's new identity? We see in verse 9 that you are a chosen race. But first we get this contrast, this but you are a chosen race. This contrast comes because earlier, last week, Pastor Andy highlighted for us that there are those who disobey the word, those who stumble over the cornerstone, those who do not trust in Jesus. They're estranged. They're on the outside looking in. But that's not how Peter thinks of his readers. He says, but you're not like that. You are those who have built your lives on this cornerstone. You too are living cornerstones, living stones along with him. And so he says, you are a chosen race. He's drawing upon language from the book of Isaiah. And I want to look at two passages uh, in Isaiah. And you can turn there if you want, Isaiah 43. We're going to look at verses 2 and 3, and then 20 and 21. And Isaiah is a book that recounts Israel's deliverance from exile in Babylon. And this is a forerunner of the deliverance that Jesus would bring. So Isaiah 43 verse 2 says, When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. Why? For I am the Lord your God. And then Isaiah 43, verse 20, it says, The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. What's the point here? In Isaiah, Israel is experiencing trials and suffering. In the Babylonian exile, waters and rivers and deserts and fire. And God is protecting and providing for his people. For what reason? Because he says, you are my chosen people and I am your God. And Peter takes this very language and applies it to his readers in current day because of what Jesus has done and all those who have brought into union with Christ, those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in him, those who have built their lives on this cornerstone are now likewise living stones. And he says, you too have God as your God. And you too are a chosen race. But he's also showing them that no matter your identity, your ethnic identity, your racial identity, your regional identity, no matter whatever it is, it comes to form one new race among humanity. Remember, Peter's writing to those in the dispersion, Jews and Greeks and Romans in Bithynia and Cappadocia and all over the place. And they're now part of God's new people. The point is, it's not mainly about physical bloodlines, but spiritual bloodlines that matter. You are a chosen race. Tracing one's lineage is 
really in vogue currently. Maybe some of you have done this. You can send out and get in the mail a, a little vial maybe that you're supposed to spit into or a cheek swab, and then you send it back, and then they'll do all of this research, scanning your DNA, and then they'll tell you what your ancestors were like, what your... Uh, genealogy looks like. They'll comprise, kind of make a family tree for you. Or you can do some genetic testing and they'll tell you what diseases you might be predisposed to or any hereditary traits that you should know about. And yet Peter is saying to us this morning, that might be fine and good, knowing your history, but what matters is not your genetic material. What matters is that you have been brought in to make this new chosen race in Christ, this new bloodline that you have in Jesus. Your spiritual heritage is what takes precedent. You follow in the footsteps of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, King David, Jesus himself, and the apostles. You're part of that chosen race. It's better than any family tree that you could come up with. And in a world fractured along ethnic and racial lines, the church, the church, more than any other institution in the world, has an opportunity to reflect the beauty and the majesty of Christ of every tribe, language, tongue, and nation gathered together to make one new race. New bonds held together by the blood of Christ, our shared allegiance to Jesus. And the thing we ought not to miss with all of these, especially this one, is that this identity is not an individualistic identity, but it's a corporate identity along with all of God's people. To call us a chosen race is that we are grafted in with all those who've come before. We are a singular global race united under the lordship of Jesus. And so for Peter's readers feeling alone, ostracized, marginalized, he says, you're not, you're not alone. You're together with all those who have trusted in Jesus. Now look with me at the second one. It says, a royal priesthood. Peter's hearkening back to language in Exodus. So turn with me to Exodus 19, and I'm going to read verses 5 and 6. He's already mentioned this in 1 Peter 2, 5, where he calls them a holy priest. But now he's referencing all the way back to Exodus. Exodus 19, 5 says this, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We actually see three of the five descriptions in our list in this passage here in Exodus. And what Peter is doing is he's, that, he's reiterating that idea that Israel in Exodus, they were called to be priests. They were to mediate God's presence. They were to reflect his glory to the surrounding nations, but they failed in that particular task because of their disobedience. But because Christ fulfilled it perfectly as the better Israel, all those who are now in Christ now get to be part of this royal priesthood. And for people, think about this, people who are questioning their identity, questioning their purpose, feeling on the fringe to be called royal priests. This would have been a stunning 
title for them to take on. You are part of a royal family. Americans are constantly fascinated with the British royal family. We want to know what they wore. We want to know all about their family. But there's no way you can get into that family. Even by marriage, you're not in line for the throne because it's by bloodline alone. But here, Peter says, you are now part of this royal family, this royal priesthood in Christ. You're all royalty because of what Jesus has done. We're all priests. We all have full, unfettered access to the throne of grace because of what Jesus has done. And we all get to reflect his glory. We all get to mediate God's presence. So Gentiles, exiles, and sojourners now become priests who minister in this new kingdom whose reign will never end. We have a corporate calling to reflect God's glory. And so each of these descriptions that we'll see and that we see already, that there is this broadening effect. What was true only of Israel, only if you were an ethnic Jew, only if you came from these 12 tribes is now true of all those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, the dividing wall has been torn down. All those who have entrusted themselves to Christ are part of this people. Number three, you are a holy nation. Again, he's drawing upon Exodus. Peter shows that the church now becomes this new Israel. Israel was rescued from Egypt and God established with them a covenant. But now, because of Christ, we took communion last week. This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood. We're now part of a new covenant people in Christ. And this new nation is called holy to reflect God through their obedience and sanctification. We saw this earlier already in 1 Peter. You're to be holy as your father in heaven is holy. Why? Because we're to be set apart and to reflect his glory. That's what we do as his people. Holiness isn't just a list of things to do, but it's to reflect God rightly to a world that needs to know him. But I think the other aspect of being called a holy nation that's really important is this. If you think about Peter's audience, these Christians in that culture, in that time, they weren't participating in the commonly held social practices of that day. Idol worship, offering sacrifices, gladiatorial combat, all these pagan practices and rituals they weren't participating in. And what would the accusation be made against them? You're treasonous. You're treasonous to this country, to this culture, to this society because you're not participating. You're not joining us in all that we do. You're making us feel bad when we do these things. And we don't like that. And what Peter does is he says, what you need to remember is not that you are mainly citizens of this earthly country, but that you are mainly citizens of a heavenly country. You are a holy nation. Your allegiances to Christ are greater than your allegiances to any earthly country. And so Christians today, we are a holy nation. Our identity in Christ is greater than our identity as all other citizens. We are mainly to be Christ-first people, 
Not America first, not globalization first, not capitalism first, not safety and protection first. All of those things might be fine, but we are called mainly to be Christ first people. Our allegiances are to be to Christ. And there will be a day, maybe in our lifetime, where our obedience to Christ will be called treasonous by the place in which we live. Why aren't you participating in whatever it is as an American? Don't you love America? And there will be a day, there will be a crisis point where we're going to have to say, what's more important, being an American or being a follower of Jesus? This is already true in places like China and Russia and North Korea, that if you are a Christian, you are looked as treasonous to the country of your origin. All of those around you say, I can't believe those Christians don't love this country like I love this country. And there will be a day for us where that may be true. It's probably coming sooner than we think. And so in a sense, each of us is a little bit like Jason Bourne. We have multiple passports. We have passports to our heavenly country, and we have passports to our earthly country. And there will be a crisis point where you're going to have to give up one of those. And which one will we give up? Which one will we hand over? Our American passport, our U.S. passport, or our heavenly passport? And what Peter is saying, remember, brothers and sisters, remember, wherever you're living, across all time and place, you are a holy nation. What's most important is that you are Christ. Number four. He says you're a people for God's own possession, God's special possession. We belong to God. Again, this is echoes of Exodus 19.5 where he says, you are my treasured possession among all peoples. Now what I want to do is rewind a little bit and go to Deuteronomy and look at how God talks about the nation of Israel after he's rescued them out of Egypt. You can turn with me to Deuteronomy 7 if you want to read it. I'm going to read verses 6 to 9. He says this, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. What is he doing there in Deuteronomy 7? He's reminding them of their identity. After I rescued you out of Egypt, I'm telling you who you are. You are my people. You are my special beloved possession. And not only that, what does he then tell them? He tells them who he is. I am the God that loves you. I am God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. And now what Peter is saying is that through union with Christ, because of what he's done, we are now that special treasured possession. We are chosen and precious. This is what it means to be 
the elect of God. Together with all believers, we are God's treasured possession. Now, I want to look at the fifth one, and we're going to skip the purpose clause in verse 9 and go to verse 10. So look with me at verse 10. It says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. He's going to the story of Hosea, both a disturbing and stunning story. And the story of Hosea is that Hosea is called to live out, act out, a parable in his own life. He's to marry an unfaithful wife, Gomer, and they're to have children. And they have three children. Name is, their names are Jezreel, Not My People, and No Mercy. Those are terrible names for children. It would be a modern-day equivalent of naming your child stupid. Every time they come, you say, stupid, come here. It would be a terrible, terrible thing to identify that trait as the name of your child. But that's what's happening in this story because God is showing his judgment on the people of Israel because of their disobedience. Not my people, no mercy. Jezreel, place of heartbreak and destruction. But what happens here? He's quoting Hosea 2.23. And it says, And I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, You are my people. The rejected children of Israel are now brought in and they are the beloved children of God. The judgment has been turned back. And so Peter's audience of Jews and Gentiles formerly living in darkness have now been brought in graciously and gloriously displaying God's mercy. They are objects not of wrath. They're not going to be crushed by the cornerstone. They don't stumble over it. They don't disobey the word, but they have been rescued and brought in. They're now his people. They have now been shown mercy. And so our identity is those who are his people. Now, the second question is, what does this new identity produce? This isn't explicit in the passage, but this is more application and implicit. For Peter to tell his listeners these five things about who they are, what should it produce in them? How are they to feel about that? What are they to think? I think at least two things. Christians should be some of the most humble people in all the world. We were chosen apart from anything we did to have God's favor. We read it again in the Deuteronomy passage. It's not because you were big, but because you were small. Not because you were special, though I'm calling you my special possession. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. People who have been shown mercy, not because anything we did, but because he chose us, which makes it so that we would be humble people. We don't look at others without Christ and say, why don't you just pull yourself up from the bootstraps? Why don't you read the Bible and, and finally get it? Why don't you get your act together and stop sinning in all those ways? We don't do that. We don't approach others with arrogance and pride because God saved us, not because of anything we've done. You and I, we did not earn any of God's favor. So for God to speak these five descriptions of our identity over us is to help us to see that we are to be humble people. No room for judgment, not to be judgmental. 
arrogance or prideful. Maybe let, let me try to illustrate this. I remember when Stephanie and I first started dating. We were living in La Jolla at the time. And for one of our very first dates, I took her to the fanciest restaurant I could afford in La Jolla. And those of you that know La Jolla know that it's an expensive area. And so we go into this restaurant, and I could tell that the waiter was a little bit annoyed with us because he could see that we were poor college kids, and he was probably going to get a small tip. And he wasn't wrong, but for the rest of the night, he was a little bit impatient, a little bit annoyed because he was not expecting us as his clientele. But for Christians, those who are called to be priests in the house of God, who are called to proclaim the excellencies of Christ, we don't do so with arrogance. We don't do so with pride, but we do so as those who are stunned and amazed that we get to participate in this glorious work. We don't serve with arrogance, but we serve amazed afresh that God would save us, that I am a recipient of mercy, that you are a recipient of mercy. Are you overwhelmed with humility that God would save you and then be willing to use you for his purposes? The, the second part, second thing that this new identity ought to produce in us is the stunned amazement at God's undeserved mercy. Stunned amazement. We were not a people. We did not receive mercy. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. While we had no love for him. Now, I think of all the ways you can ruin your life. You know, the list is really long. I'll, I'll just read half a dozen things. Think of all the ways you can ruin your life. Alcoholism, sexual sin, adultery, lust, greed, deception, anger, seeking vengeance on others, oppressing others, doling our fears and anxieties with opiates and other chemicals, relentless pursuit of power and fame and recognition, deep despondency, feelings of being overwhelmed or being paralyzed with fear. And I can see myself shackled to any single one of those with my life in a complete tailspin if it were not for the grace of God. And can you not? If it were not because of Christ in your life, changing your heart and mind and affections, giving you new values, would we not also be living in darkness? Even respectable darkness, committing respectable middle-class sins, but we would still be estranged from Christ, ruining our lives, destined for punishment and his wrath. And so we come, we ought to come with stunned amazement. And for those this morning who are watching online, perhaps you're tuning in for the very first time or here this morning, if you can't fathom having stunned amazement about this person Jesus that we keep talking about or Christianity. All you see is rules when you hear Christianity. We're praying this morning that you would come and see, that you would be able to behold Christ, that you would be able to see that Jesus has rescued those who are trusting in him out of darkness into his marvelous light and given them an identity that is greater than any identity in all the world. 
that you can be part of his chosen people, that you can be called beloved. That is unfathomable for some of us this morning. You've been only told terrible things about who you are and what you bring to the table. And the Lord Jesus Christ stands over you and says, you're my beloved, my chosen and precious people. You've been ransomed, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. I died so that you might be able to come in. And for all those this morning who do not know Jesus, we want to call you to come and see the Lord Jesus Christ. That you would see that there's unspeakable joy in letting God give you your identity rather than trying to define yourself. Now, the third question is, what is, this, what is the purpose of this new identity? Go with me back to verse 9. And we see that purpose clause there at the end. Your chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. For what? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our identity and purpose is to proclaim God's greatness and his mercy. We're not just to hide it. We're not just to kind of bask in it, but we're to proclaim his excellence. This word excellencies could be translated wonderful deeds or praises. The perfections of God are not only to be enjoyed, but they're to be declared. The perfections of God aren't just for us to partake of them, but for us to put them on our lips and to express them. That's why we sing. When the pastors were having a conversation about, are we going to have singing when we have church again? And we said, if we're not going to sing, we're going to stay home so that we can sing. Because we are a singing people. You can't hold it in. We've been rescued out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have to let that come forth in song because that's what we're created for. We're to sing his praises and not only sing in a narrow sense, but to declare his praises in a broad sense. Evangelism, building relationships with those who don't know Jesus and to be able to say, oh, I want to share something with you. Or can I share with you what makes me tick or what gets me up in the morning? We want to be able to declare the praises of God broadly, widely, to proclaim his goodness and beauty and glory. We saw this in Isaiah 43, that they might declare my praise. And we've been rescued out of darkness into God's glorious light. This is the same language that Paul picks up in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, where God shines the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And that's what's happened for all those who are in Christ this morning. You get to partake as God's people. And Revelation speaks of a day where we will have no more need for the sun, S-U-N, because we will have the sun, capital S-O-N, and Jesus will be the light in which we dwell. That's what's happening even now. We've been removed from the domain of darkness where we were mired in sin and have been rescued out so that we might dwell with Christ. And someday there will be no more need for the sun because we will have Christ as the sun. So, this morning, how do you define yourself? 
What comes to mind? When someone says, tell me about yourself, what do you go to first? Well, I used to be an engineer, or I used to work as this. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Well, my parents are from Scandinavia, or wherever, Sweden. Well, I've lived in Minnesota my whole life. Where is your identity? Maybe it's your ethnic identity. I'm Chinese-American. Maybe it's your vocational identity. I'm a factory worker. I'm an educator. I'm a student. I'm a medical worker. Maybe it's age and stage of life. I'm single, or I'm married, or I'm a widower, or a widow. I'm a retiree. I'm an empty nester. Maybe it's our national identity, our political identity, our generational identity. I'm a millennial, or I'm a boomer, whatever it may be. But for Christians, our chief identity is not the one we give ourselves, but it's the one that God has given to us, where he calls us his chosen, beloved, holy people. We are mainly defined by who we are in Christ because we have been brought into union with him. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. We've been born again to a living hope. We have a salvation that's ready to be revealed in those final days. And so right now, we are those who are beloved by God. Let that land on you for a moment. You are beloved by God. Despite what anyone else says, despite what you've ever been told, you are beloved by God if you have trusted in him. And that is our primary identity. Jesus defines us for all eternity. What he says matters. What everyone else says can fall to the wayside. And that's what he's doing for his readers this morning. He says you're a chosen race, the holy priesthood, a people for his own possession. You were not a people once, but now you're God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have mercy in Christ. Why? So that you would sing his praises, but not just in these four walls, not just in this room. We're to declare the praises of God for a watching world. As Bethlehem, we've been on about a year-long befriending initiative, that we would be those who would open our mouths with boldness and winsomeness, with the gospel on our lips, and we have still more room to grow, but not with this oppressive, have you evangelized, but rather we get to evangelize, we get to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We have no other choice than to tell the world that we love Jesus. He is the only answer. He is the only way. His joy that he gives us is greater than anything else. He can satisfy the deepest heart and soul and only what he gives can satisfy. And we get to proclaim this good news to a watching world. And so, our Lord calls us beloved so that we would declare his praises both to the neighborhoods and to the nations and to the very ends of the earth. So let's do that, Bethlehem. Let's pray. Father in heaven, may we be those as we're rooted and grounded in our identity in Christ, 
as newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, we would come back to the word again and again and read of our new identity in Jesus. And out of that identity, we would proclaim your excellencies. And we pray now, Father, that Moundsview and White Bear Lake and Blaine and Coon Rapids and Fridley and Roseville and Brooklyn Park and Brooklyn Center and a dozen other northern suburbs and then across the nations that the excellencies of Christ would be seen. Show them Christ through us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Bethlehem Baptist Church. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at Bethlehem.Church or write us at 720 13th Avenue South, Minneapolis, Minnesota, 55415. Bethlehem Baptist Church, spreading a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples, through Jesus Christ.